Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that you give us insight to interpret your word when it's symbolically, symbolically, when it's literal, literal. I pray that your spirit moves in us today to teach us, rebuke us and encourage us. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. There is an old adage in life, two things are certain, death and taxes. Of course, this is true, but I'd like to add a third thing, suffering. I don't know your stories and I don't know your struggles, but I do know that you have suffered. In thinking of suffering and how we respond, I think of a friend from high school. Brian had epilepsy, and this, of course, was hard and certainly made many days of school a lot more chaotic. But his, families and his family and close friends learned to live with it. This was until a fateful day in 2012. Two years after we had all graduated, just as the friendships from high school were being stretched by new experiences, Brian died. It rocked the community. About a thousand people attended this 20-year-old's funeral. To distill the emotional responses into three groups doesn't do the complexity justice, not at all. But I think the truth is, I can at least generalize in that way. There were three responses despair, outrage, and longing. Those with any, without any spirituality experienced nothing but loss. A dear young friend had passed away, and so rightfully they despaired. Those who believed in a distant, impersonal higher power were outraged. Imagine the upraised fist as they screamed into the sky. Why? How could you? And lastly there was longing. Those who believed in a just, sovereign God crying out, how long, O Lord, how long until you make the world right once more? The passage that was just read, Revelation 6, gives a stark and bleak depiction of the world we're facing. A world full of suffering. A world with pestilence, a world with war, a world with famine, and finally, a world with death. Yet, there is a simple truth to give us comfort. I say simple because it can be summed up in one sentence. But the application of the truth is varied and complex. There is no script to apply it. There is no one-size-fits-all approach. This one-sentence summary is this. Jesus is sovereign over all evil and suffering, using it to punish and purify. When I say punish and purify, I mean that suffering and evil are a just response to a sinful and broken world. And it will purify us because it distinguishes between those who think the gospel is supremely valuable and those who will give it up for temporary comfort. I'll say the simple truth again. Jesus is sovereign over all evil and suffering using it to punish and purify. This truth is wonderful, but that doesn't mean we are to toil away with a stiff upper lip. Jesus, in these passages, this passage, promises to set things right, to provide justice. So feel free to echo the cry of Brian's believing friends and of the saints in verse 9 and 10. How long, O Lord? 
So, if you have found yourself crying out to God as you have suffered, I want today's sermon to give you hope. I want you to see Jesus, the Lamb who was slain, ruling over every ounce of suffering and evil, over every injustice, ruling over all deceivers. And know that even those that teach and lead in direct opposition to Christ are totally under his control. One day he will return and set all things right. Before we get into Revelation 6, if you weren't here last week, it will be important briefly to summarise what happened in Revelation 5. John is experiencing a vision of the heavenly throne room. In it, John sees the scroll containing Jesus' plan for salvation. An angel cries out that no one is worthy to open the scroll. And John despairs. That is, until Christ appears. Christ is worthy. And in Revelation 6, he begins to open the seals. As Aaron's protege, oops, sorry, as Aaron's protege, I have, of course, embraced alliteration. You'll note that the three points I've broken the sermon into are what Jesus has released, what Jesus' response is, and what happens upon Jesus' return. But not only are there three R's guiding us through the passage, there is also the tale of two P's throughout, punishment and purification. Each section today, we get insight into how valuable the gospel of Jesus must have been to believers. They are willing to face deception, war, famine, and even die, and yet still long for Jesus' plan to come to completion. In contrast, we see the non-believers at the end of the passage crying out in fear at the time of Jesus' judgment. Now, following along in the Connect card, let's begin looking at what Jesus releases in verses 1 to 8. Read with me. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come! I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider had a bow, and he was given a crown. And he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. The rider on the white horse has caused some theological disagreement over the years. But I think, given the nature of the other three horses and a summary of their effect over all of creation in verse 8, that it's best to think of the white horse as the deceiver. Throughout Revelation, and most of the Bible, being clothed in white, or being associated with white, is a symbol of holiness, a symbol of righteousness. And yet, here we see in verse 2, Jesus releasing the white horse, which came out conquering and to conquer. You may be wondering why I've labelled this horse as the deceiver if all it came out to do was to conquer. Well, in Revelation 19, verses 11 to 16, Jesus is depicted in a similar fashion. Jesus is depicted on a white horse, and on his head are many diadems, or crowns. See, the parallels here, we have Jesus on a white horse wearing crowns, coming to judge the earth. The similarities are striking. And yet, the deceiver here in Revelation 6 was given his one crown. He was given his authority 
and he was not given many crowns signifying ruling over all the nations. He was given one crown. This writer wants to imitate Christ, to conquer and go on conquering. He wants to lead people astray. How does Jesus' plan for punishment and purification include people being deceived and being led from the truth? Those who do not cling to the gospel, who do not cling to the truth, will find themselves conquered by lies and deception by Satan. And the punishment is clear. If you are deceived, you will not follow Christ and you will be conquered. An elderly friend of mine got a phone call one afternoon from her internet provider. He called to tell her that her computer had malicious spyware on it and he wanted to take her step by step through how to remove it. Some of you may be already rolling your eyes, but my friend didn't know that this was a scam. She patiently followed each step, and the man on the phone ended up with access to her computer. She was deceived, and her computer was conquered. She didn't know the truth. She didn't think to test the man's words, and she was punished. The man on the phone was evil. He pretended to have good intentions. He even used language that sounded genuine. But he wasn't. And my friend suffered the consequences. We need to know the truth. If anyone or anything just simply bears similarities to Christ, we need to rigorously measure their message against Scripture. This is what leads to purification. As we combat being deceived, as we cling to the truth, we come to know God better. And in that, we can stand firm even in the face of deception. If the first horseman came out conquering and to conquer through deception, then the second horseman is much less subtle. In verses 3 and 4, And it was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. We all know there is no ongoing peace in the world. There have been hundreds of wars since Jesus' death and his resurrection and his ascension. Since he made it to the heavenly throne room, there have been countless wars. To use the language of the passage, countless people have been killed by the sword. Again, the punishment is clear. A world without peace, a world where you are killed by the sword, all this without hope or purpose, and as for purification, what does it mean to be a Christian amongst the evil and suffering of war? If we have the gospel, we have hope. If we are killed for our belief in the gospel, what a glorious witness to God. And if we are killed because the world is without peace and many are being killed, what great peace it is to be in the presence of God. Now, Deception and war are one thing, but famine is a unique, it feels like it's not driven by mankind, it's a different kind of suffering. And in verses 5 and 6, a scene is depicted. Then I heard what sounded like a voice coming from the four living creatures, saying, two pounds of wheat for a day's wage, and six pounds of barley for a day's wages, but do not damage the oil and the wine. These prices are meant to paint the imagery of a severe famine. They are about 10 to 16 times higher than the usual price. Imagine arriving at the supermarket and being asked to pay 
20 to $30 for a loaf of bread. The rider on the black horse is carrying scales, depicting a time of rationing. Not only the price of sky rocketed, the food is controlled. A time where the basics of life are controlled and portioned, but the luxuries of wine and oil are unaffected. In times of famine, minorities are often denied first or equal access to the aid. In Revelation chapter 2, John had already warned one of the churches that financial hardship was coming. Christians hearing this vision would instinctively, instinctively believed that they would be forced to endure this famine in a way that non-Christians wouldn't. Jesus taught that the gospel was worth our very lives. And as he is releasing these horsemen upon the world, Christians are time and time again forced to examine, is the gospel worth this suffering? Imagine the Christian today, suffering under severe persecution, suffering under famine, being asked to recount their faith to receive the aid package sent in by the United Nations. Finally, in verses 7 and 8, we have death. Now, you may be asking, hasn't death always been around? Didn't you say at the start of your sermon, two things are inevitable, death and taxes? How is Jesus only releasing death now? In fact, on that note, Paul, haven't deception, war, famine, death been around forever? This is a good question, an important question. And I think there's an important distinction between the suffering before Christ came back and now. (laughs) Jesus is using them to move towards his second coming. Here in the fourth seal, verse 8, we see a summary of all four horses to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. What a destructive and horrible picture. And yet, there are two layers of hope. Christ, in his supreme mercy, limits this to a fourth of the earth. Now, whether you interpret this literally, which I don't think you should, or symbolically, the comfort is the same. Firstly, The suffering is not boundless, chaotic, and total. There is a limit to the evil and suffering. Secondly, Christ is in control. He's not fighting a war he might lose. It's not a game of heavenly tug and war, where the winner is yet to be decided. The victor reigns in glory already. Now, in light of all of these things that Jesus has released, we get a glimpse in verses 9 and 10 about how some Christians experience this. The saints who have been slain cry out, How long, O Lord? These souls, collected on the altar, have known the suffering the world has to offer. They suffered death for the word and for the witness they had borne. They understand supremely that Christ has a plan, and they are impatient for its completion. This is not a plea from those still suffering. It is simply a longing for Christ to complete his judgment. They know intimately the evils of this world, and they trust, they trusted with their very lives that Jesus will judge rightfully. And how does Jesus respond? Is there an absence of a response? Is there hope in vain? No. Christ has a direct and clear answer. 
there is a time coming when he will complete his plan. In verse 11, he clothes them in white and tells them to rest a little longer. Now, we've been reading from the NIV today, and the other quotes I've referenced and the times that I've read it out, I've been using that translation, but I've deviated a little here, because I think the ESV's use of the word rest is a bit more helpful than the NIV's wait. In light of this, there are three important things to note. Firstly, they're clothed in white. As I mentioned at the start of the sermon, the colour of white is typically associated with righteousness. And here we see the saints are considered righteous, not on their own merits, not by the act of martyrdom, but by the blood of the Lamb. Like us, they are made righteous by Jesus' death on a cross in our place. Secondly, they are given rest. Whatever evils ended with them in heaven, Jesus comforts them and gives them rest. Third, there is a plan and Jesus is in control. Christians can take great comfort in an all-knowing and all-powerful and all-loving God. Jesus also gives us an indication of what is to come when he finishes his plan, when it comes to completion. He tells the saints that they will be waiting until the full number of brothers and sisters have been slain as they were. So here it is, clear as day. Christians to this day should be prepared to die and suffer for the gospel because Christ is in control. I imagine most of you have heard the quote, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And it seems that, that this is one of the reasons the full number of brothers and sisters need to die. It is missional. It is also reasonable to think that in following a Lord who was beaten, mocked and crucified, we will face similar persecution. Knowing that Christ is all-knowing, all-powerful, and as demonstrated on the cross, all-loving, should bring comfort. But in light of suffering and evil of but in light of the suffering and evil in this world, what does that look like for us here and now? Personally, this is a difficult thing to wrestle with. I can know in my head that Christ is in control. I can know that he is loving and he was willing to die on a cross for me. Yet that doesn't always answer my immediate question. It doesn't explain the plan right now. I got diagnosed with depression about six years ago. There was a period of time where getting through each day was a small miracle. A period of time where my inner long monologue consisted of a never-ending laundry list of reasons I was awful and didn't deserve happiness. There is profound suffering in this world. And particularly for Christians in the West, it's rarely directly caused by our faithfulness to the gospel. As I began to claw my way out of the darkness, with professional help, with medication, prayers, good friends, a loving family, and just an unimaginable amount of tender loving care, I began to find great comfort in the Psalms. God provided Christians through the ages with inspired words expressing great anguish I found that no matter how much a psalm felt like the psalmist was hopeless, almost every one of them ended with an affirmation of God's goodness and faithfulness. 
Let me read you an example from Psalm 13. I'll just read the first and last verse. Psalm 13, verse 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? And then the final verse of the psalm. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. I began to pray with the psalmist. How long, O Lord? I began to echo that cry of desperation. Now, I think it's natural and perfectly acceptable in times of suffering to sometimes find yourself crying out to God, why? But I hope more and more often you'll find yourself looking to his promises, trusting him and asking how long, knowing that there will be an end to all suffering. So far, Christ has released evil and suffering to punish and purify the world. Then he has responded to the saints and he said that soon his plan will come to completion. In verses 12 to 17, we get a picture of what that will look like when it happens, when the sixth seal is open. What will happen when Christ returns? And what a dramatic depiction it is. The sky will be rolled up. The sun will turn black. There will be a great earthquake. The stars will fall. The moon will turn red. If you are unsure whether to take this imagery literally or symbolically, again, I think the message remains the same. The second coming of Jesus Christ will affect every aspect of creation. And as created order is in upheaval, every person on earth is struck with terror. They've been granted the understanding that Jesus, the rightful judge, has returned and they know they will not be able to withstand his wrath. I hope you note the stark contrast between the saints' plea of how long, O Lord, and the words of the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich and the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free. Those who know their judgment is to come plead for rocks to fall on them and hide them. Can you imagine having suffered through pestilence, war, famine, only to find yourself longing to death rather than stand before a perfectly and perfectly righteous and just judge? Living in this world is messy and uncomfortable. There is evil and cruelty, and we are faced with suffering we do not understand, and with a longing in our souls for rest and restitution. But the simple truth remains. Jesus is sovereign over all evil and suffering, using it to punish and purify. I started today by talking of the three reactions people had to Brian's death. Despair, outrage, and longing. Despair and outrage can be boiled down to the same sentiment. This happened without purpose and without hope. What I tried to convey today is that Christians, we have a different response. We have a different response to suffering. We know there is a purpose and we do have hope. That is why we long for something, long for the completion of Jesus' plan. Revelation 6 shows us that Christ is in total control. We may not know why God lets us experience things, we may not always understand. In fact, if you're anything like me, you definitely don't always understand. But God will use it for his glorious plan. And I hope that after today, when faced with suffering, you feel confident to cry out to God 
How long, O Lord? We should all long for that day that Christ returns and puts an end to all evil and suffering in the world. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you that Jesus is in control. Thank you that he has a plan. I ask, Lord, that today we are comforted by this. I pray that the next time we suffer and the time after that and the time after that, we come back to this promise and we rest in your goodness and faithfulness. In your name, amen.